Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week on the podcast, we have Ronan Kilthy, head bartender at 28 Hong Kong Street in Singapore. We chat about working as a zookeeper in Australia, the rotating concepts of Junior Bar, and leading the charge at 28 Hong Kong Street. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Ronan Kilthy. I am the current head bartender, head nerd, head crazy person at 28 Hong Kong Street. Director of Human Relationships as well? Uh, you can say that. Cool. Lifestyle manager, would that apply to you? Yeah, lifestyle manager, listening ear, not professional, professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no professional, professional. How are you today? Yeah, fantastic. Always a pleasure to be at Mobar. Pleasure to be chatting to you as always. So you're a very, very young bartender. How old are you? Uh, as of right now, I am 23 years old. And uh, we get a lot of old farts in here, so it's beautiful <laughs> to see that uh, there's some young people around. <laughs> it's w- the magic pixie lotion I put on my face. That It's the secret. <laughs> so talk to us about uh, the beginning of your career. So first of all, where are you from? So I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Uh, I, I was the classic example of the third culture kid. Uh, my dad originally is from Ireland, grew up in the UK. My mum is Pranakan Singaporean. And uh, they were both working in Hong Kong and they started a family and and that's where I was born and that's where I grew up. From there, I lived there pretty much till the end of high school, secondary school. So I was 18. And then the whole family relocated back to Singapore. I immediately dropped one set of bags, packed another set of bags and went to live in Australia and the UK uh, and uh, South Africa, sorry, before going to the UK for university. How was your experience in Australia and South Africa? Fantastic. I, I was there sort of pre-gaming for university for a study standpoint. I studied uh, animal science and biology in university, so I was working as a zookeeper in South Africa and Australia. So if there is one place on earth to be a zookeeper, probably that's Australia, right? Yeah, I mean, there's it, it's uh, everyone has the stereotype of everything in Australia is going to be out to kill you, but that's what we were there for, so... It was fantastic. So is the stereotype uh, fairly correct? Um, if you look, yes, but day to day, if you're in the middle of Sydney, you're pretty good. So. Okay, cool. cool. <laughs> you're safe. Just good to know. Uh, but there is this one crazy guy working at a bar, like has this coffee liqueur. You have to be scared about him. Yeah, so. <laughs> he will murder you 100%. <laughs> so how was uh, zookeeping? So like, h- how does it work? Like, what kind of relationship do you have with the animals? Uh, how does that does, how does that work? I mean, everyone has the idea that zookeeper zookeepers do nothing but pet animals and play with cute things all day. I mean, I, I, my speciality is in reptiles. So, to be brutally honest, reptiles don't really care about you. So it's it, it's actually quite a nice analogy for bartending where you have to win their trust. <laughs> really, <laughs> a reptile trust. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, it, it's super fun. Uh, you have to, it, it's not a career for everyone because it's physically demanding and you have to do a lot of hard work for not a lot of return. Um, but I wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. 
And if the opportunity comes back, I'm not going to turn it down immediately. But right now, I think hospitality is, is quite good. So so how do you win a cold-blooded heart of a reptile? Uh, you feed it and you don't touch it. <laughs> I don't, never touch like, Touch is a big no-no. <laughs> well, um, you don't want to bother it. It's doing its own thing. So you, you don't want to interfere. Uh, you, the more you work with them, the more you understand their behavior. And yeah, you, you figure out how far you can push, how much you can get away with. But at the end of the day, it's more about keeping them comfortable. If they're comfortable, you're comfortable. Cool. So it's like essentially it's like a first date. Just yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Give a lot of food. Don't touch. Don't yeah, touch. Yeah. First date. Don't touch. <laughs> Precisely. Exactly. Precisely. Fantastic. And uh, so, what was made you think that that was the kind of career you wanted to pursue at the time? Well, um, for as long as I can remember, as a kid, that that was my interest, um, and that was the obvious sort of pathway that was set, and that was the obvious sort of thing that you needed to do to work in the position uh, that I wanted to be in. Uh, so I, I did all that work experience in Australia and South Africa. Then I went to the University of Nottingham for animal science and biology. And uh, that's actually where I started bartending, which uh, completely took a left turn on my life. So how was Nottingham for you? Nottingham's fantastic, actually. It's a very underrated town. Very uh, different weather from what I used. Yeah, very much so. I, I actually do miss... like Actually, Hong Kong, even though it's not the coldest place in the world, it has seasonal difference, which I am missing a little bit in Singapore. And I, I was I was back in Europe. I was in Italy earlier this year, and it was very nice to have some seasonal difference. So uh-huh. it was very, 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 very welcome. But uh, yeah, Nottingham is an interesting place because it's right in the middle of England, and it's a massive university town. And it's a massive junction for people. So it's actually very international for not being as big as Manchester or even uh, London, obviously. But there's a fantastic culture of food and beverage, of old English culture. And obviously there's a bunch of students, so they bring their own thing every time they come by. So what was the bar where you worked at and what kind of experience did it give you? So the first place I worked at was a place called the Hockley Arts Club, which is, uh, I was on the opening team. It was an area of Nottingham called the Lace Market, um, where a lot of, there's a high concentration of restaurants and bars. And it was a big three level, three concept venue. And that sort of gave me, uh, as I said before, I've always been interested in fine spirits and fine drinking and cocktails and the whole cocktail culture, etc., but this gave me uh, an outlet to apply other than making cocktails at home or drinking nice whiskey at a bar. And because in the name, Hockley Arts Club, it was more of club pace, not necessarily club vibe. So free pouring became part of my arsenal, working fast, working efficiently, working cleanly. Those things were drilled into me from the beginning. I have to really, really credit the opening beverage director, Charles Rush, who is now actually, uh, he's he's in London running a fantastic program called uh, Liquid Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does pre-bottled cocktails with his partner, Eleanor. And I can't thank him enough for giving me that opportunity and just sort of bringing me down to earth and like giving me that sort of like practical training in how to be fast, efficient, and smooth in service. How long have you worked there for? I was there for maybe about nine months. 
Okay. How did that turn out? Like, are you happy about it? No, I'm, like, retrospectively, I think I'm more happy about it than I was at the time. Uh-huh. Um, for me, I was more interested in, at that time, with all these, doing all this reading and knowing stuff about drinks and cocktails, I was more interested in making Negronis and Old Fashions than I was about uh-huh. making vodka Red Bulls and yeah, yeah. stuff. Of course. Um, but now, when I look back on it, that training has served me so much going forward. And in terms of, uh, so uh, during this period of time you were studying at the university, am I correct? Yes. So at what stage have you thought, is this the right choice for me, university, and am I supposed to be bartending? At, at what stage did you realize that and what did you do? Well, after the Hockley Arts Club, I moved on to another venue, which at the time of recording has been around for 20 years. It's a place called Brass Monkey. Uh, it's a bar in Nottingham that is not... Uh, it, at the time, it was an uh, industry hangout. It it did everything sort of right, fresh juice and everything. And it produced some fantastic bartenders. People, if you're in Southeast Asia, you know Jay Gray. He worked there for a stint. If you're in the UK, uh, Gareth Evans, Ali Reynolds, uh, Kyle Wilkinson, they all work there. So I, I moved there. And I was working there part-time, weekends and whatnot, and it was round about the end of my first year at university that I realized that this is something that I can do. Like, this is something that that there, there's a drive somewhere deep inside me that I can keep up. And I, I enjoy going into work. I can find things that interest me day to day. I enjoy taking care of guests. I enjoy ensuring that they have a fantastic evening. And... Because that bar was, there was no specific concept. It wasn't an X bar, it wasn't a gin bar or a whiskey bar. It was just a cool place to hang out and a fun place to hang out at the time. It was fantastic. So we had a lot of freedom and a lot of play with guests and it was fantastic. How did your family react to that? Well, having an Asian mother, it was not easy. Um, But I feel at the time I managed to justify myself. And thankfully, it actually turned out that later on in life, my mom went to open a restaurant. So now she's understanding the ins and outs of F&B. Yeah. <laughs> so, kind of needs you probably as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at, at, at the time, they were obviously not the happiest that I was stopping a degree in hard science to pursue, uh, to pursue sorry, a, ca- uh, a career in hospitality. But... I think they are actually, my, my parents are a couple generations older than I am, so, uh, but they are very in tune with what's happening and they were very aware of the professionalism that was happening and the professionalism that was exhibited and the progression that could be achieved in this industry. Mm-hmm. So it took a little bit of justifying, <laughs> it took a little bit of late night conversations, but yeah. But eventually happened, which is cool, right? Yeah. So at what stage have you thought, okay, it's time to move to Singapore? Because uh, at this stage you're working in Nottingham, right? Yes. Um, so m- my whole family relocated to Singapore after Hong Kong. And at the time, there were, uh, my my grandfather, uh, my grandmother, sorry, on my mother's side was uh, not in the best of health. She's mm-hmm. all right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was properly... we. When I made the decisions, like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to go forward. Uh, 
my parents actually being very supportive is like, sure, we'll support you, but I think it's best if you're closer, uh-huh. that it makes a bit more sense <laughs> and we can provide a bit more support or just like if, if stuff goes wrong, you, you're not on the other side of the world. Uh-huh. Which and, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I moved back end of 2016 and in the interim period, I was talking to a couple of friends, uh, Peter Chua and Zach DeGitt who were looking to open, who were in the process of opening a new venue um, at the time called Crackerjack, <clears throat> part of the Proof Collective, which uh, was a full day service, coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, cocktails uh, venue with a satellite bar called Junior, which was 10 seats. It still is 10 seats. And it's now operating independently. Um, and a rotating concept. So that's where I joined immediately, pretty much as I came in. How was Cracker Jack? Uh, Cracker Jack was fun. Incredibly fun. I, I'd never worked day service. I'd never done that whole... Because uh, we uh, th- there were three teams, essentially. There was the sm- very small coffee team. There was the kitchen team. And there was the rest of us. The rest of us did floor, bar, everything, reservations, etc. And I, I always value a generalist sort of mentality to doing anything because I feel that gives you more opportunity if you're more generalized. Um, that was a massive, massive learning curve, but a fantastic experience. The team is one of the things that I miss the most about Cracker Jack. We were all diverse, uh, so we it wasn't like seven of the same people, which can be tricky. But overall, it was, it was a fantastic learning experience, and I, I wish something like that could occur again in Singapore and it has with the rise of other bars like No Sleep Club uh-huh. that sort of stuff it's been coming up how about Junior so you worked in Junior could you like to talk to us about the venue you said it's a 10 seater bar right yep yeah and uh, how does the menu work uh, how often do you change the menu so Junior works as a small bar as you said 10 seats and every six months it's a completely new concept not just a new menu but the bar gets stripped down and rebuilt every six months uh, initially, it started as as part of the Proof & Co. Collective as a sort of Petri dish incubation area for concepts, but now it's become its own thing and become more independent. So uh, up until now, so now it's in its fifth concept. Um, it initially started out as Norma. So it's sort of like an art gallery. So you have the name of the gallery, which in this case is Junior, and then you have the name of the installation, which is the name of the bar that happens inside. Uh-huh. So initially it was Norma, which was an agave spirits and cocktail bar. We had nothing on the back bar that was not made in Mexico and not from an agave plant except for Sotol. It was more about the spirit. And the second one was Magnolia, which is inspired by New Orleans and the cocktail culture there. The third one uh, was Pacifica, which is a tiki bar. The fourth one uh, is Petit Chalet, which wow. is a uh, Alpine Lake Tahoe 1970s ski lodge. And right now it is the House of the Dancing Lion, which is a little uh, Chinese New Year pop-up. And then it'll be moving into its next concept soon. And uh, how did you guys rotate concepts? Uh, like who comes up with the idea and uh, what's the logistics behind it? Because it seems like it's a quite elaborate process, right? Yes, it, it's sort of a never-ending cycle. Uh, we, we all pitch in ideas. We uh, I don't so much anymore. I'm more at 28. But when I was there, we were all constantly sort of thinking of new ideas. And it's an it's an interesting journey because 
It's a bar with a six-month lifespan. So the first three months are making sure it can stand on its feet, and the second three months are trying to think of the next concept. So we had a pool of ideas. We kind of knew what we wanted to do. And there's always ideas being thrown into the hat. So at that sort of three-month mark, we sort of figure out, okay, guys, it's time to think of the next concept and start hunting it out. And then the actual turnover, physical space of decoration and whatnot, is three days, uh, which is sometimes tough, but generally doable for a 10-seat bar. Mm. But the work on the drinks, the work on the concept, the menu, the food, because we uh, Junior does food as well, starts at that three month in on the previous concept so after junior you moved to 28 hong kong street but i think it's important to mention the fact that uh, at present stage they're managed by the same company am i correct um junior currently is separate uh, from 28 hong kong street and the proof collective it uh it operates outside but uh when crackerjack uh closed it the space has now been turned into the proof and co headquarters so it's physically attached to proof, but it still operates as a semi-independent bar. Okay. So do you share uh, team members or not really? Uh, very occasionally, but not as a rule. Uh, the last full-on share of team member was myself. Uh, for a good okay. 10 months, I was bouncing between Junior and 28 in the middle of the week. At, uh, after how long you left Junior for 28? Um. I mean, plus, I'm, I'm assuming you had this transition period where you worked both bars, am I correct? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of when 28 was sort of coming into a new era because 28 Hong Kong Street has been open at the time of recording for eight years. And in any venue or any company that's been open for eight years, there's team changes, things happen. So it was when, when I moved over fully to 28, there was a full on team change. So that was probably the best time and a lot of work needed to be put in to 28. So we felt that it was better to have most of my effort and focus. In that specific project? Yes, precisely. So would you like to talk to us about the current state of 28 Hong Kong Street? So what kind of uh, focus do you have with the menu, music, vibe, general spirit selection? Yeah, uh, so 28, as I said, earlier was has been open for eight years it was one of the first like uh proper cocktail bars to be opened in singapore at the time there were a few places that were doing fantastic things with cocktails previously places like bar stories and tippling club they've been open for longer than us but as a standalone we do cocktails type bar 28 was one of the first uh, we opened on halloween 2011 and good date uh, yeah very easy good to remember precisely um and we've just the long and short of it is we've always just tried to present good things to people like be there for people we're not one bar we are not a gin bar we're not a whiskey bar we're not xyz we don't have a super focused concept we just want to be the clubhouse we want to be a good bar we want to be a bar where people are comfortable hanging out early and late people can come in and have a beer and a burger or they can have a ridiculous cocktail from the 1920s that no one's heard about or have a, a whiskey that's only produced three times a year we don't have everything but we at least have something for everyone and uh, how do you come up with uh, the spirit selection because you mentioned you have quite unique spirits there how do you go about sourcing them yeah well 
the fact that we've been open for eight years and we've had a very 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 good group of friends and close regulars uh we get uh, we get people bringing stuff in every time we again it's the generalist mentality we we try and provide for as many people as possible so we will have as many standards um if you want xyz like you'll see familiar labels on the back bar but we also try and be interesting about it uh we try and provide a unique take uh we have a very large back bar if you've ever been into 28 that you are presented with a legitimate wall of alcohol but we always try and have something that's a little bit different um not to step on or deride any other products but we want to introduce people to new opportunities and new new flavors and new sensations so i mean this is this is one of the things that we take consideration of uh, we always put new spirits and new cocktails through the the why test is like why does it exist is it like a cult classic is it a purely representative of a style is it super rare is does no one else have it so there's a lot of things that go into it but we just want to give the best variety and also the best opportunity to access certain spirits and uh, about the spirit selection do you rotate a lot or do you have like things that like just sit there for quite a while so what once you make a a decision that the spirit is there is it semi-permanent or do you try to keep it reasonably seasonal like air quotes seasonal it depends like there are some things that we will always have like there there are some things that i i i personally feel that are just fantastic examples of categories and some things that will sort of like pay their rent sort of thing but with brands and uh, expressions that have a lot of different expressions and a lot of different SKUs essentially um, then it's more viable that we'll keep a brand but rotate the expression so if it's Brooklatic or Kenobi they have a bunch of different expressions in their range we may we will always have a Brooklatic or Kenobi but we'll rotate what they have uh, there are some things that are so exemplary of their category that are sort of difficult to replace, uh, like Monkey Forty Seven and Hendrix, for example. Like they're they're so unique and outstanding in their category, and so many people ask for it. And we don't want to be that place. Is like, oh, we don't have X Y Z because that's alienating, and we don't want to alienate anyone. If you want a Monkey Forty Seven or a Hendrix and tonic, go ahead. Uh, if you want a Balvenie Twelve on the rocks, we'll always have Balvenie Twelve. But like in in the areas where it's that sort of gray area between known and unknown that's where we have that freedom to rotate and introduce people to something that may become their new favorite how do you manage accessibility because uh of course you have your staples you mentioned your hendrix and monkey 47s and all that but how do you make sure that uh, your guests who come in they have access to those lesser known spirits and they get to try them and and so how do you develop this relationship what tools do you use well, uh, the two things that I feel are very, very important with selling spirits are pricing and team knowledge. A, the pricing can't be too ridiculous because then that shuts off from a purely numerical standpoint. Like you, maybe you're just maybe you love whiskey, but you're not in the financial situation to buy a two hundred dollar shot of whiskey. Um, appropriate pricing makes things accessible and. At the end of the day, the producer made that booze to be drunk, not sat on a shelf and accruing value over 50, 60 years. Um, So we try and price things 
approachably, uh, yet with good intention. And also just getting the team to sort of understand what people are looking for and what things on labels mean or what things taste like. Um, it, it's difficult to sell some uh, a super heavily peated Isla whiskey to someone who likes really light Japanese whiskey. But if the team has enough knowledge to know those stepping stones to the progression of the guest, uh, the guest's experience with drinking whiskey then that will extend the guest journey a lot more how is the team structured there how many bartenders do you have and how many people on the floor and who works where so right now we have we have about five six bartenders um four five floor like full-time floor staff and we have part-timers coming in uh but all full-timers regardless of bar floor kitchen they all come in and participate in training so even though it's not directly sort of affecting the job scope any information is good information so i agree with that yeah absolutely and uh, what tools of uh, how many trainings do you do how does that work so every tuesday we do a training session and with proofing company right now uh, who is the company that runs 28 uh, they have a training platform called jerry uh, we use that as our textbook. Uh, so we'll tackle a certain subject over the course of two, three, four, five weeks, depending on how elaborate the subject is. And we'll use uh, courses on Jerry, which is an online learning platform, uh, to supplement that. And we'll bring people in. We'll do live tastings. We'll do interactive, like, how things work in cocktails. Because I feel like learning... Like I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm a massive nerd, so I can sit and read about stuff all day, and not taste anything and not make a drink. And it's like, okay, cool, I have the information. But for some people, it's like if you're talking about the Esther count of a Jamaican rum, not everyone's really gonna give a crap. Uh, but if you put that into practice, like, oh, this is what this tastes like. This is what it tastes like in this cocktail. Then it'll click with them, and it will keep in their head. So when it comes time to recommend such things to guests, they're armed with that knowledge. And knowledge is the most important tool for a bartender, right? Yeah, You're, being about drinks or being about human relationships, you know, being a bit about everything, right? No, exactly. Um, like, if you think about it from, uh, from behind the bar standpoint, every product behind that bar as a bartender, they're your co-workers. So if you know where your lemons come from, like... What you're what you're pouring, like how you make your ice, how you make your cordials, that is important. It's incredibly important because that that they're your coworkers. That's how you make them shine. And on the other side, like you don't want to alienate your guests again. Like you want to be aware of what's happening in the world, so you have something to connect to them. Because not everyone really gives a crap about the ppm of their Isla whiskey, so you need to get in there and you need to talk to them like actual human beings now we talked about jerry a little bit which is this online platform but what other tools do you use to supplement that knowledge well me me personally i'm pretty agnostic about media uh so i i can read a book i can watch a video i can listen to a podcast and that works fairly equally well for me but it's also about understanding how you are as a person like some people learn better from videos, some people learn better from audios, some people learn better from practical, and some people learn better from text. So 
I think the first thing to realize is how you learn. For me personally, even though like most things are okay with me, like I can comprehend and digest most forms of media, uh, audio and visual are always the best because uh-huh. seeing things and hearing things it just sticks better. Uh, so YouTube, YouTube, yo, it, it's it's the best search engine out there because you get visual, audio, get everything. Like more, more like. If you're asking people how they change a light bulb or fix a car, people will YouTube it before they Google it. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of times, actually, I've realized that when you search for things on Google, you don't get the result that you're looking for. But then when you when you search the same thing on YouTube, you actually get the process that you were looking for. Yeah. And, and, and it's also like the vetting process is a lot quicker because you can see what's going on. You don't have to read a whole article to figure if it's worth it for you. Yeah, exactly. Then the, there's this beautiful thing where if you do it on your phone, you can double tap to skip 10 seconds. So you can just basically skip tra- through it, right? Yeah. Yeah. In, in summary, I feel like the best way to learn is figure out how best you learn and then seek that out. Like nowadays it's it's 2020 when we're recording. It's 2020. So there's, there's books, there's websites, there's podcasts, there's YouTube videos, there's TV shows. Like the world of media is laid out for you. So, and there's equally good and bad information on in every single format. So, indeed, it, it it's also about like figuring out where best to find your resources because it's nothing. There's nothing more frustrating than reading an entire book and then reading something else where it's like, oh, that book was all bullshit. yeah and in terms of like product knowledge because like okay we talked about general knowledge you know like how whiskey is made of you know how wine is made in terms of uh, like product specific knowledge like new releases how do you keep yourself on the in the loop i mean i i have to say i'm very very lucky to be working in singapore because right now the bartending community is very very tight and it's very very communicative um communicative and communicative um everyone's sort of in it for each other and like as you're very aware like we have chats that can sometimes be a little annoying at times but at the end of the day when you need an information it is hashtag faster than google so yeah i i feel right now in singapore we're super lucky because the community right here right now talks to each other very freely i feel uh we have whatsapp chats we have facebook groups which can sometimes be kind of annoying but at the end of the day they are faster than google yeah and uh, especially like when it's uh like distributor related information like those things that you'd only know like ungoogleable ungoogleable things you know yeah and those distributors those brand ambassadors those brand amb- uh, brand managers sorry they are part of the group as well uh, it's it's wider reaching than just bartenders so they have the opportunity to post that information uh-huh. and also getting to know your local regional ambassador or brand manager um you don't have to be at their beck and call but like just they're humans too like form a good relationship and like share information and it's like hey man you got anything else in the works and they're oftentimes more than happy to provide you with information about what's happening um and being updated and being in the know is always beneficial i i, I can't see any way that being up to date with information is not gonna 
benefit you. Uh-huh, indeed, indeed. Like, nowadays, the knowledge gap between customer and bartender is getting smaller and smaller by the day. There was a point where bartenders were the enlightened few who studied and learned and customers maybe were not super up to speed with what's happening with cocktails and fine spirits. But nowadays, the access to information for everyone is fantastic. Indeed, indeed. Consumers as well. Yeah, No, exactly. People are drinking better. People are drinking more proper. So uh, just to be able to assist, like the worst thing that can happen is you use this information to sound better than someone. You use this information to help someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you don't have a doctor coming, you don't have a friend who's a doctor coming up to you and saying what you're doing wrong with your lifestyle. But if there's something wrong with you, you're quite happy to have that friend who's a doctor who knows things. Yeah, exactly. So you don't want to be imposing your viewpoints and information on people. But if people ask, you want to be there with that information because that makes everyone's life a lot easier. What's your go-to spirit category? Uh, cane, grain, agave. Yeah? Yeah, one That's, of those three. Like talking about agave, for instance, they have a, a specific style of agave spirits that you like? It, it's hard. Like uh, I'm, uh, I get asked, what's your favorite? And I, I've stopped believing in favorites. No, I, 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 don't, I don't have favorites either, but there, there's like a couple of styles. Like my, my go-to category is probably whiskeys, and I have a few categories like or whiskeys that i really enjoy like in terms of style i was wondering if you had the same yeah well for me for in agave spirit specifically it's tequila mezcal i do love ricea bacanora sotol but uh right now i have not tried a variety enough to have that so cemented in my palate but like it'll be a tequila mezcal if i want light or dark how would you recommend for someone to get into the category like how would you drink your tequilas for instance uh, it depends on what you're used to drinking. Like, if you're used to drinking neat spirits, have it neat or on the rocks. Or if you're used to drinking old fashioned, have it in old fashioned or Manhattan. But if you're new to it, like, that's the thing. Uh, the nice thing about cocktails, it's sort of you can use what you like to your advantage. So if you don't, if you're unfamiliar with the spirit category or or a flavor, there's usually a broader format that can help you. So if you like daiquiris, have a Tommy's margarita. It's very easy. It's a very similar flavor profile. I think this leads us nicely into our last question. So if you could choose your very last uh, drink, what would that drink be? Alcoholic or non-alcoholic? You can choose anything. Uh, You're about about to be executed. You're uh, on an island by yourself and you can access any drink that you can possibly wish for. It would probably be... An incredibly funky mezcal or an incredibly funky Jamaican rum because I know I'll be tasting that for the rest of eternity. Whoa. <laughs> deep cut, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome to talk to you, man. No, Thank pleasure. you so much for giving us some insights on uh, how 28 and Junior work. Oh. And uh, looking forward to having you serving me a drink. No, always, always a pleasure to be at your service, sir. And thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. You guys do amazing stuff. And I'm very honored to be a part of this podcast and a part of the group of amazing guests that you've had on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Ronan. We are unchecked underscore media on Instagram. And you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for McKelly, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>